Hello, and welcome to another episode of At Any Rate. I'm your host, Natasha Kanova, Head of Commodities Research at JP Morgan. And today we want to talk about oil markets and the renamed Inflation Reduction Agreement of 2022, unveiled on Wednesday evening by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin. I'm joined today by Ted Hall to discuss how these topics uh, will be developing. Ted, welcome. Thanks, Natasha. Uh, Ted, we've got plenty to cover on the uh, podcast this week. We wrote about recession risks uh, this week, about high natural gas prices driving oil demand higher uh, higher over this, this winter. OPEC is meeting next week. But before we get into any of that, uh, the big headline this week is, of course, surprise announcement on Wednesday night that uh, Senator Joe Manchin and Majority Leader Schumer had come to an agreement on an energy and healthcare bill, which was uh, renamed the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. The proposed bill clocked at over 700 pages, 725 to be precise. So there is a lot to cover, including permitting electric vehicles, heat pumps. But let's start with oil and gas production um, in the first place. If this bill passes, uh, again, there's a big if because we need all the senators, uh, we need all the Democrats in the Senate, yes, to uh, to vote for it. Uh, is there some good news in that bill for the U.S. producers? There are some items in the bill which are probably pretty encouraging for U.S. oil and gas operators. So last month, the American Petroleum Institute, that's an oil and gas industry group, they sent a letter to the White House with a 10-point plan to, in their words, address our current energy challenges. So why... While this bill doesn't come close to granting all their wishes, not even close, they did deliver, at least to some extent, on two items, lifting restrictions on federal lands and fixing permanent problems. So specifically, that includes funding to streamline environmental review processes, which should make getting pipelines built specifically faster. And it mandates the resumption of some offshore lease sales, which were canceled by the Biden administration earlier this year. So it, it also mandates, which I, it looks like a, a bit of a trade-off between green resources and fossil fuel development, that for any federal offshore wind leases, there has to have been an offshore oil and gas lease within the previous 120 days. So effectively, if the government's leasing wind, it has to be leasing oil too. Um, but, but it's not all good news for producers. Uh, the bill also raises minimum royalty rates for offshore oil and gas sales. Uh, it establishes new fees for methane leaks. And it charges royalties for all gas produced offshore, even if it's flare vented. So not, they don't have to put it to sales to charge a royalty. If, if you flare it, you still have to pay, uh, pay a royalty to, to the government. So that would raise costs for producers onshore and offshore uh, on the methane regulations. But most of these methane rules are for leaks and venting, not for flaring. And that's something that most producers, certainly, certainly public producers, they're already under a lot of pressure from investors and state regulators to limit. So it, it seems that this, the proposed legislation is supportive for both investment in fossil fuels as well as renewable energy. It's just uh, just reading through that. So what exactly does it mean for the U.S. supply? So short term, let's say 2023, 2024, and longer term, you know, let's assume 2025 and beyond. In the short term, not much at all. We, we certainly won't, we won't be changing our outlook on U.S. oil production uh, through 2023. So the resumed lease sales are for offshore Alaska and Gulf of Mexico. So even if development on those leases were to begin immediately, we wouldn't likely see an impact on oil supply until maybe late 2023, but probably 2024 or 2025 at the earliest. So the impact on the short term is small. Um, but I did want to ask you, what about what about U.S. demand for oil? So the, mm -hmm. you mentioned that there's a lot on the supply side for green and uh, fossil fuels, but but there seem to be a lot of initiatives on the consumer side as well in, in the proposed legislation. 
Uh, no, you're absolutely correct. It looks like a very similar story on the demand side as well. Um, so there's little short-term impact on consumption and prices, uh, but in the long run, this legislation could accelerate reductions in gasoline and diesel demand in the United States, or you know, to be more ac accurate, makes the declines we already expect a little more likely. Um, so the bill provides up to $7,500 in tax credits for purchases of new electric vehicles, uh, which will be only available to individuals earning less than $150,000 and households earning less than $300,000. Uh, there will be also a $4,000 credit provided for used vehicles. Our understanding is that the income bracket that, that is, actually, uh, is actually lower in those ones. But crucially, the credit could be offered at the point of sale, like in the dealership. So if you're buying the car online, resonant tax reforms, some meanings that you'll get your money back significantly faster than previously. So if we look at the numbers um, for our long-term expectations for EV market penetration, um, so what we decide to approach that is that we're using voluntary industry commitments uh, from uh, automakers in the United States, which cover about 99% of all the sales. So if based on their commitments to which they're providing us for 2025 and 2030, that means that by 2030, 50% of all the new cars sold in the United States will be some type of electric. And when we talk about some type of electric, what exactly we means, it means that it will be a battery electric cars, it will be plug-in uh, electric cars, I'm sorry, plug-in hybrids and pure hybrids. So it's all three, why we look at all three, it's because uh, the efficiency, the fuel efficiencies. Uh, a, a very good, for example, in the case of the hybrids, you can get 56 miles per gallon versus a regular uh, internal combustion engine when you can get, you know, like, let's say, you know, 21, something like that miles per gallon. So the tax credits don't necessarily mean that fleet transition happens faster, uh, but it would make it more certain. Just, you know, looking today, it's uh, an average vehicle lasts about 12 years, maybe even a little bit longer over the last, you know, three years just because there are no cars, yes. So and because of that, when we look um, how long it will take to actually for those electric vehicles to penetrate the fleet, uh, it, it will take a while. So in between increasing EV market share in the, auto, in the US auto fleet and higher fuel efficiency requirements, all of that means that we expect gasoline demand to have a declining profile through the end of the decade. Okay, so it sounds like there's some support for EVs which would have an impact on gasoline. Uh, but what about diesel? Uh, is anything moving the needle there? Uh, yes. Um, so in the case of the diesel, uh, the bill also provides funding for heat pumps. Uh, we are not exactly sure what is that amount because it's bunched together with uh, 500 million grants provided for heat pumps and for uh, critical minerals in the United States. Uh, but again, if we just look at the heat pumps in the northeastern U.S., that would allow consumers to replace their oil fuel furnaces in their homes and could impact diesel demand uh, by the end of this decade. Um, the numbers are not that big. Uh, so if we look at all the, you know, if we assume that every single house in the U.S. replaces their heating oil demand for home heating, um, that would be uh, only about 300 kBD. Um, but... Um, you know, though replacing oil furnaces with heat pumps would certainly lower the carbon footprint for households on the East Coast. Um, but again, you know, the, the impact on the US oil demand would be relatively small even by, by 2030. Uh, but again, the point is, you know, it's incremental here and there. So as, as, as you know, as, as a total number and that it, it could make a, dif a difference by 2030, but especially beyond. So, okay, it looks like we agree on supply and demand on US oil that this, this bill could have an impact on both 
but not for a few years to come at the very least. So can, and I'm sure our listeners are curious, can consumers expect any impact on the high oil prices we see today? Uh, no, they shouldn't. So, so any impact on the prices would be would be longer term. Okay, but in, in spite of that, oil prices have come off substantially uh, since Brent reached more than $120 a barrel last month. So, and this this comes as fears that we're in a recession have have uh, clearly gripped the market. So, is is this just the market pricing in that risk? Uh, well, no, actually, um, if we if we look at the oil prices today, they are trading exactly where our fair value is showing is that our forecast uh, unchanged since March 15th was calling for the oil prices to peak in the second quarter at 114 to be precise. The peak was in, in June at 122. That's at least you know what the model was predicting in March and then declined to, uh, to about 104. Uh, dollars per barrel for Brent prices. So I would have to say that, you know, looking at the spot prices today, they're pricing exactly where they were, should be. And uh, as you know, Ted, when, you know, when we were making our model uh, in, in, in March, the, there is no recession there. Yeah. So we have demand actually increasing substantially into the second half of 2022 and even so going into 2023. So we, we th- th- there is no recession in our markets. So the price move over the past months was, uh, yes, to, to you know, sum it up completely in line with where we expected. So recession concerns have certainly had an impact on sentiment and, and took some of the upside risk premium, premium out of the market. But uh, I would have to say that the, you know, today we're trading with at about $110 per barrel. Um, so that's, you know, that's pretty much fair value where, where we should be at the moment. So, uh, upside risk premium. What what risks what what risks make that up? Did did something change on what the market sees as upside risks? Uh, well, it's not that anything has changed fundamentally, but uh, the market is understanding of those risks certainly has. So the risks I'm talking about are chiefly the risks to Russian oil supplies and the impact of high prices on demand. Uh, on Russia, while we have maintained from, you know, from really from the very beginning of the of the Ukrainian wars, that the impact on the Russian supply would be limited to about one million barrels per day maximum. Yes, uh, but the market was concerned until very recently that the impact could be closer to two to three million barrels per day, uh, really assuming a worst case scenario. Uh, ship tracking data of oil flows makes clear that this scenario didn't happen. Russia has been uh, very successful in rerouting its barrels, which used to go to customers in the U.S. and Europe, and now those barrels are going to, to Asia, and we expect them to continue to do so. Okay, so on the demand side, what about there? Uh, uh, no, you're absolutely correct. So on the demand side, very uh, so if the market was too pessimistic on the supply side, uh, I do believe that the market was too optimistic on the demand side and how resilient demand could be in, in a high price environment. Um, so um, a- again, you know, there was definitely an obsession about the particular oil price at which level demand destruction will begin. Um, but uh, we don't consume oil. Yes, we consume diesel, we consume gasoline, and uh, at uh, $5 gasoline price, that's $185 oil equivalent. Diesel was trading at about $200 oil equivalent. So those are record level prices. And we wrote uh, already back in March that demand destruction has begun, and we see plenty of evidence that uh, we were right, but the market clearly didn't receive the message until much more recently when gasoline inventories in the US started building at the time of the year when they were uh, supposed to be drawing and both oil prices and refinery margins uh, started to fall off. So Ted, another point you make, it's about semantics. So when we talk about demand destruction, we don't mean that demand is declining. What we mean is that 
demand is growing less than we thought. Yeah, so by all means, you know, our models we still see demand growing, but comparing ourselves, you know, our demand numbers today versus where, where they were in the middle of November when we were issuing our forecast for 2022, we cut about 1.3 million barrels per day from our demand estimates. So still growing, but growing at the lower rate. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up. I think we get a lot of confusion. We see a lot of confusion about demand, what demand destruction really means. Right, um, right. So, so you don't think a recession is priced in. So, if no. we do enter a recession, if things if and if things get worse than they they are today, what does that look like for oil demand? What does that look like for prices? Yeah. So the economists are giving a scenario. You know, that's a hard hard landing. You know, bad type of recession. That's about uh, one and a half percent global growth uh, in two thousand twenty three. So at the moment, we're forecasting about two point six. Um, so that's exactly where the potential rate for the global economy grows. So one and a half, it's significantly below. Can we go to a negative rate? Most likely not, because China is about 20% of the global economy. And we, we, we don't see Chinese uh, growth resetting substantially lower. So one and a half percent global GDP, GDP growth in 2023. It means that oil demand should continue growing because of the elasticity, since we have positive elasticities between oil demand growth and global GDP, but the growth will be about 600 KBD in 2023 year over year. At the moment, we have 1.2 million barrels per day growth 2023 versus 2022, so meaning that it will be about half our current demand forecasts. Okay, so that's a pretty big cut. So holding supply equal, at least for now, what does that do to oil inventories? Yes, so good question. So at that lower pace of demand, we would expect inventories to build at the pace of about 1.4 million barrels per day uh, by uh, in 2023. Okay, so at, at that pace, we'd be back to normal inventory levels. So normal being 2015 to 2019, we'd be back at those inventory levels by the end of next year, right? Correct, yes. So without the risk premium, which comes with low inventory levels, the, the risk to oil price falls even lower? What, what price is that? Uh, yes, so uh, if we assume 1.5% GDP uh, and global demand growth at about 600 KBD year over year, we would expect prices to fall to, uh, to about, let's say the range, we could drop below 80, but the range you know, we feel comfortable with, it's about 80 to $90 per barrel. So by all means, uh, I feel that the, the the downside to the prices is pretty well supported just because of the supply profile. Um, but yes, can we can That's we right. See, so if we're yeah. building inventories at that pace, especially if we get inventories back to normal levels, the sh- and correct me if I'm wrong, the shape of the forward curve should shift. So we're in, a, we're in a really steep backwardation today because we're undersupplied, and that would shift down to flat or even a contango structure where the front prices are lower than the forward. So today, the back of the curve is anchored uh, a little lower than $80 a barrel. So unless the back of that curve were to shift up, if we're building at that rate, if we shift into a contango structure, prices could fall well below $80 a barrel. Yes, that's absolutely right, Ted. And that's the downside risk we now see in our, uh, in our recession scenario. This concludes our podcast for today. So thank you, Ted, for joining me today. Thank you all to listening to the Commodities Edition at the JP Morgan Set Any Rate podcast. We look forward to continue the conversation next week. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022, JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on July 29, 2022.